it's a really striking effect. And it's one of those you don't have to really explain to people what they should be looking for. In a couple seconds, I could see these faces looking increasingly strange and grotesque. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Ryan Watkins. Doug is on vacation this week, but he'll be back for our next episode. The journalist Anna Quinlan once remarked, Sometimes we don't see out of our peripheral vision what's coming right around the corner. Today on Parsing Science, we're joined by Ben Ballas from North Dakota State University, who speaks with us about his research into a compelling visual illusion where ordinary faces, when rapidly presented in people's peripheral vision, are perceived as grotesque and distorted. Here's Ben Ballas. My name is Ben Ballas. After high school in, in Pittsburgh, I moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts to attend MIT, thinking I was going to be a physicist and a mathematician. And then I found out I wasn't as good at physics or math. So uh, I sort of was looking around for things that were related, but you know, sort of different topics that I thought were exciting. And I found my way to brain and cognitive sciences and visual perception in particular and really began working on face recognition late in my undergrad career with Dr. Nancy Kamisher at MIT before moving on to do a PhD with uh, Dr. Pavan Sinha. And it's, it's really been just a lot of fun ever since. As with many scientific discoveries, the flashed face distortion effect was first observed by chance. It has since become a popular illusion that can be experienced through watching an online video. And we have one for you to try out at parsingscience.org E37. We started our conversation with Ben by asking him how he first learned of the illusion. You know, I think I became familiar with it the way a number of people in the vision science community did, which was this YouTube video that the first people to the to report on this phenomenology put out that sort of made the rounds of social media showing off this distortion effect that was really huge. That was, I think, my first encounter with the illusion. And then shortly afterwards, I suppose, it was an entrant in the Illusion of the Year competition at the annual Vision Sciences Society conference that I attend. Uh, so I got to see it there and, and hear them talk about the illusion and how they had sort of discovered this weird phenomenon. And, you know, I think my first reaction was probably just, whoa, right? <laughs> it's, it's a really striking effect. It's one of those you don't have to really explain to people what they should be looking for. Uh, I talk with my students in undergraduate classes a lot about visual illusions as this tool for thinking about the mechanisms of vision. And, you know, depending on the effect, sometimes you really have to say, okay, guys, now the thing you should be looking for here is this. This is not that kind of effect. After just a couple seconds, I could see these faces looking increasingly strange and grotesque, and I just found it really striking. Uh, and for me personally, in terms of my research interests, my lab does a lot of different things. And over the course of my career, one of the things I worried about as a grad student and a postdoc is whether my research sort of seemed coherent to people because of these different things I was interested in. Two of those things that didn't seem terribly related to some people were my interest in face recognition and this independent research track looking at the properties of peripheral vision. 
And so as someone who thought a lot about faces and thought a lot about how your peripheral vision is different than what happens in central vision, this illusion with these incredibly strange faces out in the periphery really just felt like, you know, the the thing I needed to know about. Illusions and the errors they illuminate give researchers unique opportunities to learn about the brain and how it functions. In episode 32 of Parsing Science, we learned about the speech-to-song illusion from Mike Vidovich. And back in episode 9, we heard about the role of emotions in the rubber hand illusion from Beatrice de Gelder. Ben shared his thoughts on the role of illusions in cognitive neuroscience research. See, I think there's two ways to think about it. Um, A lot of illusions, you can talk about them in terms of an error. But something I also stress to my students a lot is you have to remember that your vision works most of the time. So what you're often seeing in some of these illusions is the byproduct of something that does a really good job, almost always being presented with something kind of outside its purview. It gives you this special insight into the mechanism sometimes because you can sort of see the limits of what that aspect of vision does for you. In this case, one of the first things I thought of after seeing the effect is this phenomenon called visual crowding that I sort of wondered if the illusion could be related to. In visual crowding, the phenomenon is if you take, say, a single item like a letter that you're looking at in your peripheral vision, you can make the letter you know, the right size and everything for how far away it is from central vision to make it readable to you. It's going to look blurrier because it's out there in your peripheral vision. But you know, in most cases, if you put one letter of enough of a decent size out there, you'll be able to read it, even though you're not looking right at it. In crowding, the funny thing is, if you just put some letters next door to it, these items that we call flanking elements, just the presence of those things beside the target suddenly make that single letter that you could read before really difficult to identify. And this is probably one of these cases where whatever your visual system is doing to kind of summarize what's out there in the periphery, it's not the right tool for trying to read a single letter surrounded by other letters. And that's something I thought about in the context of this illusion, maybe seeing these faces where they are in the visual field and seeing them change so rapidly is a case where this mechanism you use a lot of the time to do useful visual work just isn't up to this particular stimulus, right? It can't measure enough stuff to make those faces not look strange to you. We asked Ben to describe how our vision system works and why objects in the periphery are so challenging to discern. Probably the best place to start is with your retina, uh, which is the the place where you are doing sensory transduction for vision. The light comes into your eye and it gets back to your retina, and then you have photoreceptors back there with photopigments that allow you to transduce the incoming light into an electrical signal that you can propagate back to the rest of the visual system. An important thing about our retina is that it's not the same everywhere you go along its surface. And so there's a couple of different things we can say about that. One of the first things to say is you have more than one kind of photoreceptor in the retina to help you measure light. Most people are probably familiar with cones versus rods, and those are two different classes of photoreceptor that you have on the retina that are sensitive to different wavelengths of light. So they they help you transduce different kinds of light that come into your eye. And to talk about the periphery, An important thing to know is that the cones and rods are distributed very differently across the retinal surface and in the middle, 
That's where you have the greatest density of cones is sort of right there in central vision. And they fall off very rapidly in terms of density as you move away from central vision. And rods basically do sort of the opposite, right? You have more rods as you move out towards the edges of your vision. And that's sort of a first place to start uh, in terms of talking about what things you sort of can and can't measure about light if it lands on different parts of your retina. So your cones are responsible for providing you with your color vision uh, because we also have three different classes of cones that live on your retina. And basically by looking at the responses of those three different kinds of cones, you can essentially make an estimate about the wavelengths of light you're seeing and you experience that as color percept. Your rods don't really let you do that. Um, rods are just their own class of photoreceptor. And if you're only listening to the signal coming from rods, you're not going to get color vision. The other things that are important to pay attention to are how signals from photoreceptors converge on later stages of vision. Ben leads the high-level vision lab at North Dakota State University. The lab is interested in two big questions. What features do we use to recognize things in the real world? And how do we learn to recognize things around us? Student researchers are major contributors to the lab's work. And as we learned from Bryce Hughes in episode 26, lab experiences can be instrumental in the persistence to graduation for undergraduate students. Here, Ben explains how he met Hannah Pearson, his undergraduate co-author on the paper. I actually met Hannah when she was still in high school, right before she was coming to campus in the fall to be an undergraduate. And I met her at a community event. I was helping out to serve brunch at a local temple in town. Uh, and it should be said, I had like a very sort of indirect relationship to the temple. Basically, friends told me that they were shorthanded and they needed someone to help, you know, sort of scoop breakfast food. So I'm standing there doing this, you know, for, for most of a morning. And at some point, as they're rotating people out, Hannah, who I didn't know before then, uh, is next to me, you know, serving up the scrambled eggs or something like this. And, you know, we sort of get to talking just, you know, okay, hey, what's your name? Oh, you're heading to NDSU. That's great. And she mentioned she's interested in, in psychology and she's interested in getting involved with research. And so I say, sure, you know, my lab has room for people to come in and, and work on stuff. I'd be happy to have you join. So she really started working with us, you know, as early as possible in her undergraduate career and got involved in a number of different things. And, you know, for most students, when they first start in the lab, you assume they haven't done research before. And so a lot of what you're trying to do is just kind of teach them the process. Since Hannah started with us so early in her undergrad career, very quickly, I was sort of thinking, okay, I'm going to have to think a little more long-term about what kinds of things to give her that are more challenging, right? More, more sophisticated things to do to reflect how much she's learned. And so, you know, I sort of said to her after a little while, we're at a point where I feel like you know how to do this stuff. And I really want to push you to think about questions of your own because she was already thinking ahead to graduate school. It turns out that the flash face distortion effect was something that, you know, Hannah saw and basically was like, that is amazing. I, you know, what's going on with that? I, I want to know how it works. And I said, you know, that's great because we don't know how this thing works. And it's really striking. Ben and Hannah's article describes three sequential experiments that they conducted in order to examine how the illusion functions. 
Doug and I were interested in hearing how the experiments were set up and what the participants experienced as they contributed to the research. When participants came in, um, after they did you know, the whole consent process and had the task explained to them, they'd sit down in front of an ordinary desktop computer monitor, pretty big one because we need to make sure we can put these images you know, kind of far out in your periphery in some of our experiments. And before they get started doing anything, we show them the original YouTube videos of the illusion, just to kind of give them a sense of, okay, this is the effect that we're referring to, here's what it looks like. And so in those videos, you look at a little fixation cross right in the center of the screen, and you see these images of either celebrity faces in one case, or just you know, uh, photographs of models in another case being presented to you pretty rapidly in a sequence to the left and to the right of that central point where you're looking. So after they watched the videos, uh, we basically said, okay, we're gonna show you different versions of that same illusion, and we want you to tell us how distorted the faces look to you on each trial. So just use the numbers one to seven to tell us it either didn't look distorted at all, or it looked incredibly grotesque and distorted. And after that, they would basically be presented with a fixation cross, just like the ones in the video. And now we start presenting faces to them out there in the periphery, controlled by our experimental software. We do mention to them that you will see some faces that are upside down. That's not a mistake. Don't worry about it. But in every case, you know, tell us how much you see these faces looking distorted to you. And sort of take as much time as you like, but we routinely tell people, you know, don't agonize over it. You know, don't really dig in on the difference between a five and a six for minutes at a time. So yeah, that's sort of the, the physical setup. Most of the experiments didn't take terribly long to do, although it depended a little bit on how many conditions we had. But mostly folks hung out for probably about, I think, 20 minutes or so, looking at these sequences and rating them for us. In the first of the three experiments, Ben and Hannah focused on how color may be contributing to the illusion using a database of facial images that included the same models with and without makeup. They were able to study the influence of color on those experiencing the illusion. Here's what Ben had to say about their results from this first experiment. Makeup really didn't do much at all. The faces looked as distorted makeup-free as if they had lots of makeup on them which was a bit of a surprise to us because we thought, you know, adding this lipstick and eyeliner, these faces really are just sharper looking. And when you see the distortion effects in the original stimuli, they look all these weird colors. That's part of what makes the faces look so strange. And so we really thought, you know, adding some colors to these faces should enhance that anything. Um, but that really wasn't the case. The inversion effect is a little harder for us to interpret and something we had to sort of wrestle with a little bit in revising the paper for review um, is interpreting the, the Bayesian statistics we use to talk about the size of that effect. So there is this trend for uh, the inversion effect affecting the distortion of the faces, but it doesn't reach these sort of standard thresholds for statistical significance. And when we look at these these tools like a Bayes factor to try and talk about whether there's an effect of that or not. It's in this range where the answer really is sort of, you know, it's anecdotal or weak evidence in support of that effect being there. And so it kind of leaves us in this position where we have to say, you know, there's something maybe here, but if it's happening, it's very small and we can't be unequivocal about whether it's there or not. So that first experiment was really 
honestly, in some ways, a little frustrating. These things that we thought would have a big impact really didn't have that much impact at all. And so after seeing these effects that were really about face appearance, not pan out, so to speak, and not lead to these big changes in distortion, uh, you know, we were sort of talking about where to go next. And we, we agreed to move in a direction where we would test these more general properties of the sequence, things that weren't so much about a face looking like a face. And one of the first ones we did was the manipulation of presentation time. Just, you know, how quickly do those faces in the sequence flash by for you? After this short break, Ben explains how, in study two, they tested properties of the illusion that could illuminate how the brain is tricked into seeing grotesque faces when there are none. This episode is sponsored by We Share Science. When researchers are curious about what is happening in science, they go to We Share Science to explore video abstracts uploaded by other researchers. You can search their vast catalog of video abstracts to learn about the latest scientific findings, or you can share your research with the world. Whether your research is in progress or already published, at We Share Science, you can share your science and grow your impact. Explore the world's research at WeShareScience.org. Now, back to Parsing Science. Ben picks up with his discussion of Study 2. The original report had sort of mentioned that, you know, four to five faces a second seemed to be sort of optimal for making these things look the most distorted. But we wanted to, to basically do that as carefully as possible and, and really try to look closely in that range to see what was happening. So yeah, we covered a, a wider range of, of presentation times to kind of see how that changed the distortion effect. It's kind of a cool thing to think about in some ways. You know, on one hand, increasing it should be better should lead to more distortion because each face is on there for longer and can induce more adaptation. On the other hand, the next face is also going to be up for more time, which is supposed to weaken that distortion. Um, so it's kind of a, a neat a neat thing for us to think about and try and do the literature to, to figure out you know, what's a range where we can manipulate these things and see if it affects perception. And in that case, the answer was, was quite strong. Um, more time means more distorted. If those faces are up there for a little more than that sort of standard presentation time they reported in the first paper, they start to look weirder. And if they are flickering by too fast, the effect is very much weakened. At some point, you're just kind of like, nope, it's just a whole bunch of faces and they're flickering really fast. I don't see anything weird. Rather than applying hypothesis testing techniques to their questions in the studies, Ben and Hannah used a Bayesian's approach to assess the differences in how people experience the illusion. Before moving on to study three, Doug and I were curious to learn why they considered a Bayesian analysis approach as optimal for answering their research questions. It allows you to talk about evidence supporting the null hypothesis, which you don't typically do in something like a null hypothesis significance testing framework, right? You either reject the null hypothesis or don't. The, one of the, the strengths of the Bayesian tools is you can talk about the amount of evidence supporting either the alternative hypothesis or the null hypothesis. Uh, and what that means is you can sort of make stronger statements about things that really probably didn't have an effect. You can say something more precise about what your data allows you to conclude. The other thing, too, is there's been a lot of concern about things like p-hacking, you know, this, this game of trying to get your results below these magic thresholds of 0.01 or 0.05. And one thing I like about the Bayesian approach is, you know, it's almost certainly not immune to the same kinds of things, I guess. But 
the way people talk about things like Bayes factor is a little less prone to that sort of game of inches, you know, where you say, oh, it didn't quite make a Bayes factor of this. And so, you know, you're not allowed to publish or <laughs> you're not allowed to talk about your data that way. I think the tool lends itself to a more nuanced presentation of what you did find, which I just think is better. You know, it makes it easier to tell people what you saw and for them to have a clear quantitative sense about what it likely means. As Ben described earlier, crowding, also called lateral masking, is a phenomenon in which a target object is surrounded or flanked by other objects. When presented in the periphery, identification of the target is more difficult in the presence of flanks. In their final experiment, Ben and Hannah examined the potential role of crowding in how people experience the illusion. This is another case where we wanted to manipulate something uh, that we thought was you know, a real general principle of peripheral vision that really ought to have an impact here. So one version of the story about why crowding happens is that uh, you maybe try to measure something that's a little more like a texture to describe what you're seeing out there in the periphery. One of the reasons things might be hard to recognize under crowding conditions is that texture measurement just doesn't give you enough to constrain exactly what you saw. You know, you can, you can probably rule out some things. You can say that probably wasn't on the screen right now, but there's a pretty big class of possibilities that could have given rise to the same texture measurements. Whether you believe that specific model of crowding, the idea was basically to see if some of these things that affect and don't affect crowding work the same way with the distortion effect. And as you move the images further out into the periphery, uh, they tend to look more distorted to you. So increased blur in the periphery does seem to increase the grotesqueness of the illusion. And interestingly, changing the size doesn't seem to do a ton, which for me was kind of neat because that is part of what people sometimes refer to as the signature of crowding, that it doesn't help you to make a crowded array just bigger where it is necessarily. Um, it tends to be sort of invariant to that scaling. This was kind of cool for us to see, first of all, because there was this very strong effect of blur, that the lack of an effective size, you know, kind of gives you some, some other hints about other things that might be at play. And this effect, though we call it a face distortion effect, probably isn't really just about faces. It's probably just about these more general properties of your peripheral vision, which should mean we can get other stuff to look distorted if we present it the same way. Computer vision is a fast-evolving area of science. Industries such as artificial intelligence, robotics, autonomous vehicles, and surveillance are all demanding vision as a core component of their current and future offerings. This led Doug and I to wonder, do computer vision systems also experience illusions like the flashed face distortion effect? I think it is true that most computer vision systems don't have what you'd call peripheral vision in the sense that what they're measuring across the visual field is probably pretty uniform. And the reason for that is basically that you can get away with it. You know, in, in human vision and in other visual systems, having, say, a fovea and a periphery and have that be the organization of your eye is really about sort of having the best visual system you can subject to the constraints of metabolism and just how much you'd have to do to the signal to deal with having really high fidelity over your entire visual field. 
So this is one of the things we, we often say to students is, you know, you might sort of wonder, why don't you have that nice central vision everywhere? And one way to answer that question for them is to say it would just be way too expensive. Like you just need so many connections and so much metabolism to support that. You kind of couldn't do it with a head the size of your head. But like when we build a camera, right, and we put sensors in the camera to measure the visual field, there's not a reason for us to have lower fidelity sensors out on the edges, right? We may as well put the same stuff everywhere. So yeah, for the most part, they don't tend to have peripheral vision as I understand it. But people are doing work to basically develop artificial vision systems to you know train them on natural data, the kind of data that humans would get, and then see if they have some of these illusions, which would be really cool, right? Because one question you sometimes have if you're building a model of the visual system is, even if it solves the tasks that human vision solves, is it doing it the same way? You know, and am I really getting insights into how the human visual system does it by studying this model that I've created? And illusions are a tool people are definitely using to try and say, hey, my model probably is doing something more like the human visual system because it falls for the same things human vision falls for. The preprint server ARXIV.org, pronounced archive, is one of the first and best known preprint services. At the same time that they submitted it for publication with a traditional print journal, Ben and Hannah uploaded their manuscript to SciArchive, another preprint server focused on psychology research. While preprinting articles is still relatively new in many disciplines, the trend is catching on as Ben discusses next. Instead of submitting your article to a traditional journal and having the peer review process take as much time as it takes and go through rounds of review like you, you typically do, these preprint archives are a place where you can deposit your work. You can write the paper and you can put it on SciArchive. It gets a DOI. It's searchable. You know, you can post to all your social media accounts and tell people, hey, we've got this new result out there. And part of what it allows you to do is say you've just been at a conference where you presented work that you're hoping to submit soon. While you're at the conference, after you give your talk or after you present your poster, you can upload your preprint and post a link to it on your social media accounts. And folks who are there at the conference, just excited about your work, they can go read all the gory details in your paper now. But on one hand, the disadvantage of the preprint idea you don't get this feedback from peers that's sort of vetting the paper for you. And so how do you know it's good? You know, on the other hand, I think there's an argument to be made that we should all kind of be making that assessment ourselves anyway, right? Like when you read a paper, even if it's been peer reviewed, all right, but wait a second, you know, if I was the reviewer, what would I say about this? You know, what are the things here that worry me? And in some ways, the preprint server kind of makes you do it. Right, You sort of know this group just posted this here, and if I'm going to read it, I'm probably going to have to be a little more critical on my own. And I think that's probably a good thing. And so, you know, say you have results that were below, you know, classical thresholds for significance, and you're struggling to get them published because, you know, you're not quite on the right side of that threshold. You know, people talk a lot about the file drawer problem and those kinds of results remaining in limbo and no one really knows what happened because they're hard to publish. In some ways, the preprint servers help you solve that problem because you can upload it and you can say, look, warts and all, here's what happened. 
And now it's something people can search for. It's something they can cite if they want to. And maybe that means people can give feedback about maybe why things turned out the way they did, or at least just all be more informed about what kinds of experiments people have done and what stuff they found out about that they haven't published. That was Ben Ballas discussing the article, Factors That Do and Don't Affect the Strength of the Fleshed Face Distortion Effect, which he preprinted with Hannah Pearson on June 5th, 2018 in Sci Archive. You'll find a link to their paper at parsingscience.org E37, along with bonus content and other material he discussed during the episode. If you want to listen to Parsing Science at home or in the office, and you have an Amazon Alexa, you can now simply request Alexa Play Parsing Science Podcast. Reviewing Parsing Science on iTunes is also a great way to help others discover the show. Head to parsingscience.org review to learn how to do so. Next time on Parsing Science, we'll be joined by Pete Capilotti from Penn State University, Abington. He will discuss the not-so-distant past archaeological research projects he writes about in his book, Adventures in Archaeology. The, the ranger said, and I thought it was one of the best answers I've ever heard. He said, you know, the only person who knows what that symbol means is the person who made it. <laughs> and, and I said, why didn't I think of that like 40 years ago? We hope that you will join us again. <laughs> <laughs>